Well, thank you, fellow, for reading from Luke 10. And as we read this story of Jesus sending out 70, as some manuscripts have, or 72, as here, trainee disciples on mission, what immediately strikes me, and perhaps you, is what an alien world this is portrayed compared to our crazy, stress-filled Western society. This text, like a time machine, transports us back to a very different world. It takes us to a Middle Eastern rural setting where life was simple and uncomplicated and communal, to a climate where wandering along a dusty lane was relaxed and pleasant, to a culture where people had time for each other and where hospitality meant a great deal. Here were novice disciples, wandering itinerants, trying their hand at preaching, at healing, at exorcism in the name of their rabbi and their master, Jesus of Nazareth. And there's so much, of course, about this story that we would love to know. Did these 72 include women? What proportion of those prayed for were actually healed and set free? How many of these lambs did get devoured by wolves? And what was the reaction when they shook the dust off their feet when they left? Towns that rejected them. The nearest I get to this world was years ago uh, when I served as a sort of pastoral apprentice to an evangelist in a very isolated part of East Yorkshire. I drove around on a very uncool Honda 50. I did have shoes and a wallet. I got attacked not by wolves but by Alsatians. I occasionally lived in caravans doing children's mission. I experienced hospitality in East Yorkshire with the farmers that ranged from eating the very best beef and Yorkshire puddings you could imagine to something that was truly grim. And as I read the words of Luke chapter 10 verse 7, eating and drinking whatever they gave you, I still, still feel my stomach turning as I recall one farmhouse defined by its overpowering smell of cats where the wife would open a tin of sardines, pour the contents out, not onto a plate, I kid you not, but directly onto the carpet and a whole litter of kittens would descend and lick every last bit of sardine oil. After two days, I was so ill, I had to leave. This story of the sending of the 72, unique in its form to Luke's gospel, seems a million miles away from where most of us are today. And yet there's something about this account, even as Falu read it again this morning, that draws us with a strange power. There is something here 
that for all it being in a very different world, somehow resonates and challenges and indeed excites. Last week we began this Lent series, and I'm grateful to David Raffle for launching it for us, setting the scene of Luke's account of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, which is one of the great focuses of Luke's gospel, and to the cross. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem, is what we read last week. And twice in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has predicted that he would be delivered into the hands of evil men and be crucified. What we now discover as we come to chapter 10 is that though Jesus was heading for the cross, he was as committed as ever to proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. Jesus has already sent out the twelve on very similar terms, was recorded here. But now he's widening his ministry to 72 further trainees. And what is more, if you look at the opening verses of chapter 10, uh, he is even praying and asking them to pray for a bigger workforce. You guys who I'm now sending, you pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out even more workers. Why? Because he says the harvest is plentiful. Israel is ripe for the sickle and must be gathered in to the kingdom. After centuries of waiting, God's kingdom has now drawn near in Jesus. The time of fulfillment has come. And perhaps what draws us to these verses is that there is an urgency, there is an immediacy, there is a strategy, there is a clarity about mission. And interwoven in this ancient account is, it seems to me, an abiding pattern, an abiding blueprint, a paradigm of what all Christian mission should look like. For the post-Easter mission of the early church, for the church in every culture today, and for our discipleship here in Scotland at the moment. Now notice the opening rules of engagement. Two weeks ago, I had a very pleasant three-day retreat, something I like to do at the beginning of Lent in one of my favorite places, the Northumbria community. And this little community, um, Neolmouth, um, with its Celtic feel, has two defining values. Their rule of life is availability and vulnerability. And that's exactly what we find here. So notice, they are being sent out as lambs among wolves, verse 3, very much mirroring the vulnerability of Jesus himself. This is no doubt, in part at least, why they were sent out in twos. And they were to be dependent upon God. It says in verse 4, do not take a purse or a bag or sandals. 
and there is to be an urgency about their task. <coughs> Do not waste time with oriental wayside etiquette. Do not greet anyone on the road. As the pastoral princesses will know, I have difficulty fulfilling that. I saw a few of you on Friday and wound out the window of my car to greet you on the road and noticed that the driver behind me was not best pleased at having to test his brakes. And then there were to be a blessing. First say peace to this house, verse 5. And they were to be grateful for whatever provision God gave them. Do not move around from house to house, verse 7. And most of all, they were to heal the sick and announce that the kingdom of God is near. Indeed, it is among them, verse 9, on them. And here is this lovely portrayal of travelling light, of trusting God, of taking a day at a time, of being available and vulnerable, of praying with people in need, of sharing the good news naturally and simply. And I, for one, have so much to learn from this lovely passage. Predictably, two weeks ago, I found myself thinking about the Celtic Saint, Saint Cuthbert while near Holy Island, born 634 AD. Cuthbert had a remarkable vision of God and a miraculous healing of his knee as a young boy, gave his life to Christ and eventually became prior of Melrose Abbey and later Bishop of Lindisfarne in March 684. There are few passages of early Christian literature more beautiful than Venerable Bede's account of Cuthbert's life. Listen to this. Cuthbert made a point of searching out those steep, rugged places in the hills which other itinerants dreaded to visit because of their poverty and squalor. This to him was a labour of love, and such was his skill in teaching, and so glorious did his godly countenance shine forth that no one dared keep back from him the closest secrets of their heart. This is Venerable Bede at his best. This is Luke chapter 10, stuff. But at the heart of this story, of the sending out of the 72 is one outstanding truth. And it is this, that central to what it means to follow Jesus is to be willing to be sent out as his representatives, as his ambassadors. And that's the thrust, actually, of this whole passage, it seems to me. What Jesus did, they were now to do. They were to go ahead and prepare the way by representing Jesus' ministry. What Jesus taught, they were to teach. What signs and wonders stuff Jesus did, they were to do. What Jesus suffered, they were to suffer. What Jesus blessed and cursed, then they were to bless and curse. And we are meant to see 
the closest possible connection between Jesus' ministry and that of his disciples. So look at verse 9. Heal those who are ill and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. And look particularly at verse 16, which is here on the screen. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. And here is this chain. Jesus uniquely revealing the Father. We, rather inadequately, revealing Jesus in our representative lives and witness. But through revealing Jesus, the risen Christ, people in turn come to the Father. Why were 72 or 70 sent out and not 60 or 50 or 42 or whatever? Well, most commentators would say that this number was symbolic. And just as the 12 represented the newly constituted people of God in continuity with the 12 sons of Jacob, so the 70, many suggest, recall the 70 elders who served <coughs> alongside Moses. They were representatives of Moses' leadership, and so here is one who is greater than Moses, and we are to represent him. So here's the punchline of this morning. Familiar to most of us, but a truth that I think we never ever can hear enough of. That wherever we go this week, be it to our lab or our golf club or gym or school or office or neighbourhood, we go sent by the Lord of the harvest as representatives of Jesus Christ. We may not name him, but we go in his name. A distinction that David Harrison helpfully made in the last seminar, and I commend his seminar tonight to you. We may feel very inadequate, but we go with his authority. We are the body of Christ, his hands and feet, words and smile to those who desperately May they not knowing it, but are seeking God's saving rule and reign that can transform their lives. And when we made that, make that snide comment, we betray Christ. When we don't tell the truth, we no longer represent him. When we become impatient, we seek to reflect the one who we are seeking to represent. Now this theme of being ambassadors for Christ, to say a theme many of us are familiar with, is portrayed in this passage in ways which I think are fresh and challenging and provocative. So above all, notice that when these 72 set off, there is, as you read this passage, a real sense of occasion, of seriousness, of destiny about their witness. Their message and their style is not casual chat. It is actually one of life or death. A new age has dawned. A new creation has begun. The rule of God has come. 
the transforming reign and peace of God has arrived in Jesus. Receive this message. See the extraordinary power of Jesus as we pray in his name and believe. But if you don't, woe to you. It will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And the last judgment is clearly in view in this passage. Their words, these representative 72, were about heaven or hell, were about eternal bliss or eternal death. Woe to you, Chorazin, a town not mentioned elsewhere in the Gospels. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. It will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon, these pagan cities at the judgment, than it will be for you. Catch the feel of this. Now, I don't think for a moment that this means we are to go through this coming week all intense and heavy. But I do think it means we need to take a reality check. There will come moments, unexpected and unarranged, when we do have opportunity to speak words of life into someone's life. We will have those moments and privileged moments of praying with someone or of saying something about what we believe in God. And when we do, we are to remember that we do so with the very authority of Jesus, the risen and ascended Lord and his kingdom. Look what they reported back to Jesus in verse 17. The 70 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit in your name. And Jesus in turn tells them of a vision he had while they were on mission. He replied, verse 18, in apocalyptic imagery of the time, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The demons who submitted to the disciples did so precisely because the might of Satan, the prince of all diabolical powers, is already broken and will soon be decisively so on the cross. And then echoing some words from Deuteronomy, where the Israelites are reminded of how God, I quote, led them through the vast and dreadful wilderness with its venomous snakes and scorpions. Echoing these words of Deuteronomy, Jesus then says, I have given you authority to trample down snakes and scorpions and to overcome all powers of the enemy. He really is the greater than Moses. Thinking back to those days many years ago now, working with an evangelist in East Yorkshire, I remember this guy, Arthur Dean, telling me of a meeting in a small Methodist chapel where as he spoke, he felt a particular sense that the presence of God was there. And as he ended this meeting, he challenged those who were there that many of them might like to come for counsel and prayer at the end of this evangelistic service. And no one came forward. 
But such was the sense of God's presence that this guy just stayed in this little Methodist chapel and prayed as the congregation left. And about five minutes after the last person had left, the door creaked open and a rather shy lady came back in and said, I just could not get home without coming back to talk. And then another appeared. And then another appeared. And soon there was a whole gaggle of people desperate to know the grace and power and salvation of Jesus Christ in their own lives. We are not being sent to market the Jesus cause. We are being sent to witness to the kingdom of God that has come among us. There was an sense of occasion. And I fear sometimes we lose that in all the casualness of our culture. And secondly, there was a sense of joy. Jesus speaks to them and talks to them as those who are not representatives of a firm, but those who are members of the managing director's family. Look at verse 20 as he goes on after talking of his vision. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Some of you may know the story of Sir James Simpson popularised in the commentaries of William Barclay. He was this eminent Scottish professor of medicine and midwifery at Edinburgh University and you see his statue as you walk down Princess Street. He was noted for his charm and his energy and a brilliant controversialist. And of course, of all his achievements, the greatest was his discovery of the anaesthetic effect of chloroform, discovered in November 1847. He was part of Carubba's close mission. He was a member of St. Columbus Free Church in Edinburgh. And he was once asked, as William Barclay tells the story, what was his greatest discovery in life? And he said, my greatest discovery has been coming to know Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. Do not rejoice with any success that you may have. Rejoice, says Jesus, that your name is written in heaven. And notice that Jesus immediately moves into a wonderful prayer of praise in verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father. And he praises God for opening the eyes of these humble 72 trainees, but praising God even more for his own unique relationship to the Father. And these words that follow in verse 22 are wonderful words, wonderful Trinitarian words of praise. 
We serve Christ and we represent Christ, not out of duty, but because through Christ we have come to know the Father and all the blessings that are ours through him. Liz Brander, who is not here this morning, gives me permission to tell the story of her daughter. Some weeks ago, her daughter in Cooper had the wonderful idea of starting a ministry, and I was talking to some folk in Angus's house on Janice's house on Tuesday about this ministry called Bags of Kindness. And what she has done is something very, very simple. She's got a few handbags. She's filled them with toiletries and cosmetics, and she's been giving them out to homeless women in Dundee through Women's Aid. She put the idea on Facebook, and a thousand people have responded, and now her spare bedroom is full of handbags ready to be filled and given out. Being a representative of Jesus is meant to flow out of the great joy and blessing of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's because of the Father's bags of kindness that we represent Jesus with joy. And finally and briefly, this account reminds us of the untold sense of privilege that comes with being an ambassador of Christ. Look finally at the words of 23 on the screen here as well. Then he turned to the disciples and he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but they did not see it. To hear what you hear, but did not hear it. He calls their attention to the glorious privilege they are enjoying. A privilege longed for by the prophets and kings of old. They knew someone was coming. They knew something about a promised revealer and redeemer. And here that person is standing among them. And notice how without embarrassment Jesus is pointing to himself. As he saith these words. St. Cuthbert again, as I end. Cuthbert died on Farn Island, and watchmen were waiting to shine a light across the Linda's farm to tell when his death had come. The evening office was being said, and Bede says that the sacraments were given to Cuthbert, and then Bede writes these beautiful words, with eyes wrapped in the praise of the Lord, he was taken. Isn't that beautiful? With eyes wrapped in the praise of the Lord, he was taken. And I pray that our eyes will be so wrapped in the praise of the Lord, the privilege of what we enjoy through Jesus Christ, that we will go and be like these 72 trainee apprentice disciples and missionaries with a sense of occasion and a sense of joy 
and a sense of privilege.